Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast, the fan podcast that takes an in-depth look at the filmography of action icon Dolph Lundgren. Today we're going back 23 years and looking at 1995's cyberpunk thriller Johnny Mnemonic and this somewhat bizarre but highly original cult classic Keanu Reeves plays Johnny Mnemonic, a futuristic courier who smuggles valuable data hotwired into his brain. Dolph Lundgren shows up as a villain for the third time in his career, this time taking on essentially a cameo role as a deranged religious bounty hunter who's on the trail of Keanu Reeves' character for a big payday. Joining me to chat this film today is Craig Cohen, host of the Slycast, the Sylvester Stallone fan podcast. Craig, thank you so much for coming on, man. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I got to tell you that 23 years ago for this movie is mind blowing. And one thing I've I've sort of discovered doing these podcasts where we talk about older films is um, how old I'm getting. It's it's mind boggling to think. I mean, because, yeah, 23 years have passed. And like you, I distinctly remember seeing this film in theaters along with so many others. But, yeah, it really it really helps show your age. I mean, we are uh, we are old men now. I mean, I don't know how old you were when Johnny Mnemonic <laughs> was released in theaters. but I remember seeing this. I believe I was 12, 13 years old or so. It was released in May of 1995. So I was about 12, 13 years old then, but I, I just, it, I, I, I'm old now, I guess. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you. Uh, I was, um, God, in 1995, I was 21 years old. So I was able to okay. go out and have a beer after I saw this movie. And, and, and what a movie to have a beer after, right? <laughs> well, and as I was, as I was telling you, you know, you host the the Slycast, which is kind of similar to, to my concept. You know, you are a you are a fan uh, and you have this immense appreciation for your hero, I'm assuming, Sylvester Stallone. And if you could please tell us a little bit about the Slycast. How long have you been doing it and what has been your approach to each of Stallone's films? Yeah, the Slycast is something that sort of just organically came about. I was I had been podcasting for a couple of years prior to it, and I had made some connections through that. And uh, the two Jeffs that I started the Slidecast with, um, we were just joking around one day about, you know, the idea of doing a like a comprehensive, you know, masterclass, if you will, on the films of Sylvester Stallone. And, you know, it started out as a little bit of a lark, and it was supposed to be like a 13-episode maxi-series. And the response after we released their first episode was so good. And we were having so much fun um, that we decided to make it sort of a, an ongoing thing as, as long as we have Stallone movies to cover. And what we do is we do deep dives into each one of his movies and really get to the core of, of what makes a lot of his movies great, what makes some of them pretty bad. But um, also, you know, to expose people to the idea that Stallone is a better actor than a lot of people give him credit for. He's a damn fine director and he's not a bad writer either. And um, we've since been lucky to grow the show. And uh, we've added Mike Kunda, who has just an amazing story and uh, makes a living as a, a Rocky impersonator in Philadelphia. And uh, he's got his own incredible story going on where he's he's, you know, got a 
a documentary about his life hitting um hitting film festivals right now and uh yeah we're just having a blast doing the show and it, it's been a little challenging i moved from the east coast to the west coast a couple of years ago um so it's made recording a little challenging because of time differences and and work commitments and family commitments um but we've been going solid i think since um i want to say like february of 2014 the, the show came out so a little over four years and i think we just posted uh episode 25 maybe so we're at a little bit of a, a slow pace but uh we're getting ready to unleash our coverage much to uh Mike Kunda's chagrin of The Specialist. I can't wait for The Specialist because, and I'm looking forward to that episode, obviously, but yeah, The Specialist is, The Specialist is a bit of an odd duck to to take a look at because, I mean, I, I enjoy it, um, you know, wholeheartedly because the, the action set pieces within the film are excellent. James Woods is probably one of the best villains, probably one of my favorite villains out of all of Stallone's filmography. But it, it, it's kind of weird because it came, it came out, it was released at a time, I distinctly remember, when Hollywood was trying to uh, mix and, you know, kind of mold these big budget action movies with also, you know, also the sex if you remember, and, you know, this, this unnecessary nudity in there. I mean, you know, unnecessary nudity has always been uh, a staple of, of action films, especially of the 80s and the 90s. But around that era, around 93, 94, that, that's, you know, kind of around the, um, you know, there was the tail end of Basic Instinct. And I remember uh, Fair Game with Cindy Crawford came out about a year or two later. So, yeah, it was these producers, um, you know, especially with Warner Brothers, were trying to mix those two those two genres if you will and they really they really didn't work they did it just doesn't fit <laughs> yeah yeah and it's funny you mentioned fair game there because there's a, a stallone connection in this in the sense that um cobra was based on the same novel that fair game was that's right that's right um uh, and it's it's difficult picking which one of those two adaptations i like better because they are both so wildly different but I think I'm going to have to go with Cobra because it yeah. is a Stallone vehicle. And you get that ridiculous scene of Brigitte Nielsen doing a model shoot with the robots. I mean, so. <laughs> oh, so great. Yeah, but no, it's, that's a good point about that era in film because the specialist does sort of have that um, gratuitous shower scene between Stallone and, and Sharon Stone, uh, both at probably the peak of their physical um, – you know, their, their, their physical powers, if you will. Yeah. Well, and I remember, you know, I remember seeing it for the first time and especially if you watch it, I actually watched it about uh, six months to a year ago or so and you watch it and it, it's also an odd duck to look at because Stallone and Stone, <laughs> you know, Sharon Stone and Sylvester Stallone, they really don't have the best chemistry among the two of them. So you're supposed to buy them as being these, these, you know, lovers, I guess, you know, they, they become lovers in the film, but they don't have the, the best chemistry in the film. And it, it's, it's, it's kind of odd because you can almost sense that Stallone feels a little uncomfortable in, in some of those scenes. Cause that's not his, that's not his wheelhouse. That's not his, <laughs> you know, that's not yeah. his genre. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. So, but you guys are going in chronological order of Stallone's filmography. Is that right? Yeah, and I know a lot of listeners are patiently waiting for us to get to some of the uh, the newer stuff he's done. And and when Creed came out, uh, we did do a special episode, sort of based. Uh, it was more of our reactions to Creed as opposed to uh, 
a scene by scene breakdown of the movie. But um, we just thought going chronologically through his career would really sort of sort of give a, a nice um, sort of highlight um, or, you know, it's, it's, it's more of a historical journey as well. And you get to see the highs and the lows of his career. And it also forces us to cover movies we might not have wanted to cover. <laughs> well, and that, that is the exact approach that I've been going with, with, with my show is, you know, and I, like I told you, your, your show was one of the inspirations for me to, you know, get my project up and running. But, you know, Lundgren has always been, you know, he was, he's always been my hero. And I keep saying this on every episode. And so I really wanted to do kind of like what you said, a deep dive right into his career and break each film down. Um, you know, in, in some episodes I've been going scene by scene. Others I've just kind of been doing a, um, a glossed over view of the film. But you really do get a, uh, a newfound appreciation, I think, for, for the artist and for the star when you go in this particular order. And when you do this, uh, this comprehensive analysis, because you get to, you get to see the actor and you get to see the star trying new things, growing as an actor. Mm -hmm. And you, I, I, I don't know if this is the same with you in the slide cast, but I've built so uh, such, such a stronger appreciation for Lundgren, you know, by doing this, by doing this project. Oh, t totally, totally. And like you said, you know, when you, when you do it in this manner, you're seeing, choices being made and, and, and chances being taken. Um, whereas if you're just doing sort of a, a time jump where you're jumping back and forth, you don't really get that continuity of why Stallone decided to do two comedies in a row, let's say, or why Dolph Lundgren made the choices he made. Um, so it really puts that stuff into perspective. And, and a lot of times I think it also helps, um, some of the weaker films. Um, where it sort of gives some of those weaker films a little bit of, I don't want to say a pass, but when you are, when you're watching them outside of a vacuum and you see what they were, what came before and what came after and where they were in their career, uh, you can appreciate it a little bit more. And, and I think like from a Stallone standpoint, I think like Rhinestone is a great example of that. And I, I know Rhinestone isn't a movie that's held in much regard outside of uh stallone's fandom i don't know how it's held in in the dolly parton fandom but i think <laughs> um when you watch it within the context of sly's career i think it's a much uh, a much better film than a lot of people give it credit for no i agree i agree completely with you and i'll just put it out there right now um but this is this is going to be a big year for both for both stallone and lundgren you know um they have Creed 2 that is slated to come out around Thanksgiving of this year. I, I, I wonder if they're going to stick to that, that particular release date. I, I certainly hope they do. But I will, I will propose it right now that when Creed 2 comes out, if maybe we could do like a joint shared episode or something like that to, to commemorate and celebrate its release. Oh my goodness. That would be amazing. And, uh, please make sure that, um, that we do do that and please pester me if uh if if it's if it uh if it's something that falls off my radar because i think that's a tremendous idea and i think it's a a great idea for a crossover yeah oh, perfect perfect well and so this the film that we're talking about today johnny mnemonic uh w when i first reached out to you um saying hey craig would you like to be a part of my show and <laughs> and and you said most definitely which again i thank you for um but when i asked you about you know, which, which film of Lundgren's you have an affinity for and which one you would like to discuss. 
Johnny Mnemonic was the first one that, that you stated right out of the gate. And so obviously that was a while ago because, you know, I've been going in chronological order. So I remember saying, okay, well, I'll pencil you in for Johnny Mnemonic when we get to it. And well, here we are at that date. We have gotten to it. And so I'm curious why, why Johnny Mnemonic? Why was this the film that you, uh, that, that you have an affinity for and that you wanted to break down with me today? Yeah, it was one of those things when Johnny Mnemonic came out in theaters, um, I was going through um, cinematically, but as well as, you know, in book form, a huge science fiction phase. I was reading a lot of science fiction. I was watching a lot of science fiction. And, you know, Johnny Mnemonic, the movie sort of hit a lot of a lot of cool buttons for me. Um, in terms of, you know, presenting, you know, new and foreign tech that, you know, now sadly looks a little, a little dated. Um, but it was overall, it was just a type of movie that was really geared towards, um, you know, a, a sci-fi fan in their early twenties. And then I went back and I sort of, that led me to discovering, uh, William Gibson and reading, you know, the short story that inspired Johnny Mnemonic and then reading some of his longer works. Um, but overall, it was just a it was just a cool cool movie, and watching it again for this podcast, I hadn't seen it in in quite a few years, even though I had watched it many many times um, in the years uh, right after its release, and I'm sure I bought this on on um, on DVD the day it was released. Um, but one of the things that really sort of struck me watching it um, earlier this week, uh, prior to sitting down with you to talk about it, is like. This movie really, it feels now to me like a midnight movie. And it feels like, you know, um, I don't want to say it, it, it's got a, a cult following because I, I don't think it does. But it definitely feels like one of those movies that you would see playing during like a cult film festival or that, you know, a, a midnight movie festival or something like that. And those are movies that have always appealed to me as well. I, you know, I never thought of classifying this film within within that particular category. But no, you're exactly right. You know, the one thing I will say about this film before we fully get into it is, you know, it has been maligned. I mean, if, if you if you look this film up on various, you know, various blogs or any kind of review, I mean, it's been the subject of ridicule on a couple uh, on a couple podcasts that, pur that purposely pick films to pick apart and make fun of. Some of that, I guess, um, I, I can understand and, you know, I can see, especially how it plays today. But a lot of that I, I don't really understand because, you know, if you look at this film and th this is one of the reasons why I think maybe it, it didn't really latch and it wasn't as popular when it was released, is I feel like the film is so far ahead of its time that when it came out in 1995, people really didn't know how to respond to it. I don't think the audiences back in 1995 really even understood it fully uh you look at it now and it definitely makes sense and you you definitely appreciate it because man what a what a visionary uh william gibson gibson is mm -hmm. you know you, you know with just the entire conceit and everything going into this but that's kind of one of the the things i wonder when when it was released when it came out you know the internet was something that was still in its its very early early infancy and so it, that's kind of my theory as to why it, you know, didn't didn't click with audiences then. As as far as the way it is maligned by today's standards, I mean, like I said, it's been on a, a number of podcasts that they like to, to to poke fun at it. 
I, I guess you can pick a few holes as to, or a few avenues as to why it's ripe for that. I, I think Keanu Reeves is a little is is a little wooden. He has a few moments in the film that he really does he really does open up, but he's he's a little wooden. So I guess that's one of the aspects there. But the overall story, the overall conceit of human being being used as a hard drive is is extremely original. I, you know that that's the one thing that when I watched it now, I was thinking, my goodness, this is this is so original considering that nowadays we are all about storage and we're all about data. I mean, we upgrade our phones <laughs> and we, we get the hard, hard drives that have, you know, so much space on them. And so the fact that here this film came out 23 years ago and it's touching upon upon that, I think that says something. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I agree with you. And to go back to uh, the Keanu Reeves acting thing, I remember that I tried my darndest to defend his 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 poor performance in this film to friends of mine who dismissed it. And my line at the time was, you know, it was a conscious decision as an actor um, to perform the way he did, because in essence, Johnny Mnemonic doesn't have a childhood because he sort of gave up that part of his brain. I don't think that theory plays too well today, especially watching the movie again. Uh, but mm -hmm. at the time it seemed like a pretty good defense of his, of his performance. Well, and you know, I mean, I don't know if you'd agree with this or not, but I've always felt about Keanu Reeves. The guy just exudes cool. I mean, he, mm -hmm. he always has. And you look at him now in John Wick. I mean, he's even more badass nowadays. I mean, first of all, he doesn't age, which I, which I don't, I don't know how he's, he's able to, to do that, but it doesn't seem like he ages at all. But um, yeah. yeah, he just, he just exudes so much cool when he's on screen. So I've always been able to, kind of overlook some of his some of his wooden acting um because of that because he is just he is just such such a badass when when he is on screen you know you look at him when he did point break uh and i would mm -hmm. say you know point break is probably the most keanu of all of keanu reeves performances but in that one he he's a badass i mean he's one of those he's one of those guys who you just i i feel like uh i feel like george costanza i don't know if you watch seinfeld or not but um Oh, yeah. If you remember, there was the, there was the episode where George uh, was just infatuated with Elaine's boyfriend Tony, and you know, and because because Tony was the cool guy, and so I feel like when I see Keanu on screen, it's just like, hey, can I hang out with you? Would you, yeah. would you want? Yeah, and I th I think Keanu has also sort of grown into himself as an actor, and you know, uh, you know, through experience has has improved. But Keanu Reeves to me is one of those actors that I sort of put in that same category as like a Mark Wahlberg where they're really, really dependent on a strong director to sort of get them where they need to get. And I think that if, if I was going to make one sort of heavy critique of this movie is that, you know, Robert Longo, who was a first time director. Um, I don't think he did much after this, if at all, he's an artist and a photographer um, from what I understand, but I, I feel like the direction in this movie let a lot of the performers down. And the only people that really came out of it unscathed were probably, um, Dolph, of course, because he's such a strong, uh, presence. And I think he probably had a lot of, uh, good experience under his belt. And then also Udo Kier, who played, uh, who played Ralphie. Um, but I, I think everybody else was kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, didn't really put their best foot forward here. And, and I, and I think you have to put the blame on, on the direction. That's a fair statement, but 
you know, you were talking about, you know, when you first saw this film, and I'm just curious, what is your experience with, with Dolph Lundgren? Have you, have you always, have you been a fan? Did you, have you always watched his work? I mean, when, when Johnny Mnemonic came out, you know, did, were you a fan of Lundgren at the time or what was your, what was your exposure to him? I remember, and I don't, I don't remember how this movie was marketed or even the billing, but I remember uh, seeing Dolph Lundgren attached to this film being really uh, a, a big deal for me because uh, I hadn't really remembered seeing Dolph uh, in a movie in, in, in a while. Um, you know, I, I think, I, I don't know where this came out in relation to like universal soldier. Um, but I mean, Dolph was one of those guys that I always liked. I mean, of course, you know, Rocky four was, you know, just such a, an amazing, um, amazing, uh, movie and performance. Um, but then also, you know, you had, um, showdown in little Tokyo and masters of the universe, um, and, and the Punisher, which, um, I know superhero movies now are sort of this huge big deal but back when the punisher came out you weren't getting comic book movies a lot so even though it, it's not the best adaptation uh the punisher was a movie that we watched over and over and over again on dhs so i i mean i wasn't a a, a super fan um but i remember being uh a, a lot more interested in the film uh, based on the fact that I saw that that Dolph was involved, and then of course, um, seeing his character and how that played out, um, really just uh, you know sealed the deal for me. Well, and see, and I, I, I guess my experience was slightly different than yours. I, I remember seeing this in theaters. I remember most of it going over my head <laughs> <you know, laughs> at, at the time I saw it, um, but I, I distinctly remember this being sold as a Keanu Reeves movie, which in the end, that that's what it is. You know, he is front and center. I think he's pretty much in every scene of the film. If not, then he, he, he virtually occupies, I'd say about 95% of the scenes in the yeah. film. Um, but I distinctly remember when, when it came out, I don't remember seeing Lundgren's name in any of the trailers. Um, it was only when it came to, at least from, from my recollection, um, my memory, I remember when it came to, to VHS, Lundgren hmm. was top billed alongside Keanu Reeves, you know, on, on the VHS box. And if you remember this, then when this was released to VHS, it was released on a neon orange video cassette. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I actually, um, I, I had that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I just, it didn't make the cross country move with me, but I had it. Yeah, it was on this neon orange video cassette, uh, and I remember the box, uh, the box art of VHS. It was a close up of Keanu's face with a see through opening where his brain is, and you could see the videotape. Do you remember that? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I miss these days of physical media because you just don't get that kind of care and precision with films released to the home market these days. But <laughs> in in any case, so when this came out to theaters, it was being sold as a Keanu Reeves movie, and so. Lundgren's name really wasn't in a heck of a lot of the marketing. And I remember reading a few reviews when it, when it came out, I remember reading the reviews in the newspaper and all of the reviews were pointing out Dolph Lundgren plays a villain known as street preacher. And so I, I was a fan of Lundgren at the time. So I remember reading that and I had to do a double take like what I didn't know Lundgren mm -hmm. was in this movie because he wasn't in any of the trailers, which I look back upon now and I think was a wise move because when he comes on screen, 
damn, you, <laughs> you, you know yeah. that that is him. So, but yeah, I, I remember at the time thinking, okay, well, if Lundgren's in this, I have to see it. And so I went to see it with a couple of buddies. And like I said, a lot of it went over my head. I, I know a lot of the um, expository dialogue and things is, is coming at such a rapid pace in the film that, you know, I, I don't think I understood it fully. It, it, it's definitely a film that I think you need to see multiple viewings to fully get and to keep, so you can grasp and understand everything that is going on. But yeah, that was that was my early exposure to it. Mm-hmm. And, and at what point did you make the connection that um, Ralphie's bodyguards weren't both women? <laughs> yeah, I remember. And see, okay, this is so we're kind of going around <laughs> all over the place here. But that is one of the things that I think is a bit, bit of a problem with the film, a little bit of a detriment to the film. I read one review in preparation for this. I read a few reviews, actually. But one of the reviews I state, that, that I read stated something along the lines of when William Gibson wrote the, wrote the screenplay for this, because he is credited as, as, the, as the writer for the film, even though I guess he's later gone on the record saying that they changed a lot of what he had put into the script. But yeah. one of the reviews I read stated that they think that William Gibson, when he was writing this script, when he was writing the screenplay, he almost kind of had it in his mind that he was thinking, you know, this could very well be the only movie that I ever get made based on some of my work. So I'm going to throw in everything in this film. <laughs> and that's one of the problems with the film, I, I, I feel, in the end, because there is there are so many so many secondary characters in the film and. You know, they're, they're fun, don't get me wrong, because these are not cliche stock characters. Each one of these characters, there's something new and unique with each of them. But in my opinion, I think that all of these characters in the film, I think this film would work better if it was a series. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say that right now. I feel that it would work so much better if it was a mini series. I could see something like this airing on the Sci-Fi Channel or something like that, because this universe, they're building this universe in the film. And... You know, they've built this world here that's inhabited by such originality and all these unique characters that I don't feel the 95 minute running time is helping it. Would you agree? Uh, you know, that's an, that's an excellent point. And um, I do know that this film was pretty much taken away from from Longo and I guess, you know, to a lesser extent, Gibson. And and I, I know and if I was more interested, I would probably would have spent more time tracking it down. I know there's a Japanese cut of this film. Um, that's about 10 minutes longer and it's closer to their original vision. Um, but the idea of this being um, a, a TV show, uh, especially in 2018, where, where where those kinds of concepts are really working. Yeah, it would have been, uh, you know, prime, prime material for for uh, a season long series. And I don't know who owns the rights to this nowadays, but I could def- I could certainly see the sci-fi channel, you know, if they could get the rights to something like this and they could put it out there and make it, even if it was one season, I think it would, it would cater to the world that they have built in the film and, you know, pay it the respect that, that it deserves. And I I could see something like this working on, on the sci-fi channel. I mean, as I was watching this, I was thinking, man, if sci-fi had the rights and if they wanted to pursue it, this is an original idea because I, I can just see, you know, each, each week, for, for example, each week a, a new episode airs, uh, Johnny has to, you know, upload the latest data and move it, you know, go on a 
on a mission to, you know, from point A to point B. And, you know, each episode encounters the, the villain of the week, because that's what I feel these villains are in the film. I feel like you kind of, it's, it's almost like a video game in a sense, or a villain of the week, like I said, to where, you know, you have this one villain, you have the, the one Yakuza assassin with the, with the laser <laughs> whip attached to his finger. And then you have yeah. the street creature played by Dolph. You know, it's, it's almost like they're, they belong in two different, maybe not two different worlds, but two different episodes or two different mm -hmm. levels of the video game. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and it's funny because I know we're jumping to the to the end now, but um, it's great that's that the street preacher is sort of you know from a video game standpoint, if you're looking at progression, he's the he's the the final boss. He, he yeah, exactly he is, and you know like like I said earlier, Lundgren gets second billing on this, which I feel is is pretty generous in the end if you think about it, because Lundgren's role is essentially a cameo. Yeah, and and that was probably just um, his agent working hard for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it was a combination also, of his agent working hard for him. He was, yeah. you know, certainly one of the bigger names to the film. I guess apparently there was more shot with Lundgren, but they did cut quite a few of his scenes out because they didn't want to. They were they, they were afraid that it would offend certain religious groups. Is what I read. Hmm. I you know and I haven't seen those scenes even though I know there's a, a lot of deleted stuff on YouTube, um, but I I would say one of uh, the, the the things about this movie that I think they got a hundred percent right is the amount of Dolph we get. I think the editing there and the the amount of exposure we get to him. I mean it's not until like forty three minutes or so uh, until we get him, but I think from that point on all of his all of his appearances um, are are perfect and and I think. Uh, we've got just enough of what we needed. And it's kind of like that Boba Fett thing where, you know, you know, in the original Star Wars, you know, movies, you know, Boba Fett is sort of this name and he's, he's barely seen. And then, you know, we have that big payoff in, in Jedi. Um, and I kind of feel that that works a lot more than it doesn't. And I, and I think, um, you know, a lot of times a character like the street preacher works with that level of exposure. Well, and, you know, he is, I mean, let's face it, it, it's a good thing that not only does he have second billing, but like you said, that he is peppered in the film as as little as he is, because when he is on screen, it, it's pretty frightening. I mean, it's it's a downright disturbing, many of these scenes with him in it. Um, but, you know, as you and I were talking earlier before we started, before we started recording, I feel like the film would work just fine without Lundgren. And... <laughs> I don't, I don't want Lundgren not to be in the film because, you know, he, he is definitely he is one of the most memorable things about the film. But the, the film would work. I mean, if you lifted the character of the street preacher out, the film is still going to work. I mean, even though you said he is the final boss at the at the end, you know, I mean, what what I, what I honestly think they could have done is the Yakuza could have hired, you know, just another random assassin under their, you know, under their wing or under their control. And it could have been a member of the Yakuza and the film would have worked. I feel yes. just fine. But the fact that, you know, they have added such originality and such flair to what is in the end, an assassin for hire. It's, it's a bit of an anomaly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's an excellent take. Um, and, uh, I think that's one of the things that works for this movie. And you sort of alluded to, you know, the, the amount of secondary quirky characters that we get. And I think as we go through the movie, we can address some of those, but, uh, 
Yeah, no, that's a great assessment. And to my knowledge, I mean, so I'm assuming that you have read the short story that this film was based on. Years ago, yes. It's, okay. um, yeah. So to my knowledge, Street Preacher is not in the short story. Is that right? Yeah, correct. He, he's not in the, he's not in the story. And, uh, my other big takeaway from it is that, um, the ice T character, uh, J bone, um, was, I think he was somehow part dog. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which didn't he end up playing a part kangaroo hybrid yeah, and tank-, tank girl? Yeah. It's, so, it's been, it's been yeah. probably 20 years since I've read that short story, but it's in an excellent collection of uh, William Gibson short stories called Burning Chrome. Okay, okay. Well, and I know that there are quite a few uh, differences. You know, there's some similarities as well, but I know that there's some differences as well, well that we can get into. But like we were saying earlier, you know, this screenplay was written by Visionary, the, the guy's a visionary. Let's Let's put it out there. Uh, William mm-hmm. Gibson, who essentially pioneered the cyberpunk science fiction yeah. genre. And mm-hmm. the film was directed by Robert Longo. This is, to my knowledge, this was his only film that he ever really did. He directed a few REM videos and I guess a Tales from the Crypt episode. But this was the only film on his resume that you can say he was in control of. Yeah. And and the, the, the little bit of research I did... Um, it. It's funny, they don't really mention this movie at all in a lot of the, the write-ups I've read about him. And it seems like he's he's an artist, and that's kind of what he does. And it seems like the 90s, he sort of went into this music video detour, which I think a lot of people found their way to, and then um, somehow found himself attached to a $30 million film. Well, and, you know, you can tell that he does have that art background, because there are, you know, the set pieces in many of the scenes are, you know, extremely well done. I mean, when they get to heaven and when when Mm -hmm. we get to go into, you know, the low tech compound where, you know, they are, they're planning this resistance. I mean, I was going to say that later on, but yeah, the, the, the set piece for heaven with all those TV screens stacked up is extremely impressive, especially by 1995 standards. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, there's, there's a lot in this movie um, you know, uh, from a visual standpoint, um, there are some points where I think he gets a little too into that sort of Joel Schumacher, uh, you know, Batman forever, you know, tilted camera kind of stuff. Um, but yeah. the, uh, the production design and the set design and, and even the costumes are, are really, really top notch. Well, and it's funny that you mentioned Joel Schumacher, Batman forever, you know, cause a couple fun facts about the film in the pre-production stage is I guess originally Val Kilmer was attached to the role. I don't know if you read that or not, but he, he no, backed out wow. to, to do Batman Forever. Yeah. Wow, and that would have been this, that would have been awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I think I think the film would it would definitely have a have a different take to it. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, it wouldn't be Keanu being Keanu. Who knows what oh, Val yeah. Kilmer would have added to this? Because I I like Val Kilmer, and I think he has become in recent years much more humble, you know, uh, regarding his career. But around 94, 95, I think he was at the, the zenith of his, of his egotistical asshole, you know, <laughs> stage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was right, uh, probably right around, uh, what tombstone and, and heat. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was totally yeah. probably not a good, not a good era from an ego standpoint. No, no. But 
This was, I don't know if you knew this or not, but this, uh, the script was originally with legendary renegade studio, Carl Co pictures. And unfortunately they had to drop it. And the script was put in a turnaround and was given to another company because, you know, Carl Co had all of their financial troubles. I can't help but wonder, you know, cause Carl Co they were known for spending, 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 and just putting tons of money toward, toward productions. And so this particular film, I, I can't help but wonder if Carlco did not run into the financial difficulties that they did, what this film would have looked like if it stayed with them and if it was distributed by them. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned that because one of the things that, you know, I, I've already alluded to the, you know, the, the direction sort of, you know, this movie kind of suffers in that department. Like if you had seen, you know, like a Paul Verhoeven sort of, uh, attack this movie, um, who at the time was, you know, really playing in that sci-fi sandbox with RoboCop and Total Recall and then even Starship Troopers. Um, you know, this is a movie that I think if, if he had gotten his hands on it, um, we could have probably seen something pretty amazing. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree. Because, you know, <clears throat> we were talking about this on the Universal Soldier episode. You know, Carl Coast Studios, they, that their films all had, you know, my buddy Chris put it perfectly. Their films all had this edge to them. You know, mm -hmm. they all had this, this, this style and this edge and this sheen to them that when you were watching it, you knew that it was a Carl Coe picture. And I think, you know, that, that particular edge and that, 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 that shine that these films all had is one of the things, if not the only thing that helps them stand up so well today. I mean, if you look at, say, for example, Terminator 2 and Universal Soldier, if you look at those two films, both put out by Carlco, I mean, they are just wonderfully shot, the the, the cinematography and just the the overall um, uh, composition, the colors that they use. I mean, they, they just look beautiful. So yeah, a, a futuristic story set in a, in a post-apocalyptic, you know, future that Johnny Mnemonic is that, you know, where, you know, it, the, the world is overridden by this disease. I, I can't help but wonder under Carl Coe's wing, this could have looked really cool. Yeah. And, and, and that's funny that you mentioned that because like, um, you know, I, I used to live in New Jersey and I wasn't too far from Newark and the Newark in the, in the 2021 version of this film isn't too far off from, uh, the Newark that, um, that exists today. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. And, and you were talking about feeling old, but ugh, when you, when you see on film, you know, just keep in mind in 1995 and you see a 2021, that's the future. I mean, my, my, you, that is the future. You watch it now in 2018, you're like, Oh boy, 2021. That's, that's going to be in a few years. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. every time I watch demolition man, I always, cause <laughs> doesn't demolition man start in 1997? Yes. And so, so when you watch Demolition Man, I, you know, I remember when that first came out, it was like, wow, that's going to be in like five, six years. Okay. And you watch it now and 1997, the Hollywood sign is burning and everything. It's like, well, that's what they thought the future was going to be at the time. So we, we can't knock them too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like I said earlier, this is Keanu's movie. I mean, you know, my understanding is that he filmed this, he's filmed Johnny Monic after speed and Johnny mnemonic sat on the shelf for a little while. It was, it was after speed hit big that Sony who was then Columbia TriStar realized that they could really sell this film by banking 
on the box office appeal of Keanu. And so I, I can't help but think that that is why in the trailers and in the marketing for when this thing comes out, Lundgren is nowhere present in it. I mean, you know, he was he was hot after after Speed had come out, if you remember. And so oh, yeah. this was, you know, marketed as being his his next picture, his next follow up picture. Um, and I, I remember seeing I remember watching actually a, uh, a thing on the E, the E channel, the E network or whatever about, you know, a lot of the movies that, you know, big box office stars had done right after their big hits and how they tanked. And Keanu Reeves was on that list. I don't think that was really fair, though, because, like I said, he had done this right after Speed. He didn't know that Speed was going to be the big hit that it was. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's funny. That happens with people a lot, too, because I remember, like, what uh, Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger were in one of those Texas Chainsaw sequels that sort of sat on the shelves, uh, and then they both became superstars, and then all of a sudden... It's like, hey, we've got this Texas Chainsaw movie with the both of them. And, uh, yeah, you know, it, it's, it, it is unfair because, you know, the, the choices that Keanu probably would have made um, or did make after Speed are, are different than the ones that he made right around the time that he, you know, made Speed. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but, you know, the film opens with, you know, it does one of these things that I think is is always a little problematic. And. I think this is why you don't see films open this way anymore. But the film opens with a ton of information, a ton of just expository information that is just front-loaded on the viewer via this futuristic text that is crawling across the screen. And yeah. it is it is almost way too much information. Did you feel that as well? Yeah, well, and especially because a lot of that information is relayed um, multiple times throughout the movie or it's shown to us. So it just seemed extraneous. Um, you know, if you look back at, you know, opening, uh, you know, scrolls or, or whatever, you know, you have, of course, you know, the Star Wars movies and I think like John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Um, but this is completely extraneous um, because, you, like I said, you basically get all of this information through characters or just through watching the film where, it, you know, they, they do that thing where they show instead of telling where, you know, they kind of, you know, uh, you know, nullified all that by just getting it all out right up front. Uh, and that's well, and probably the, the, a product of the, the studio taking the film away. Uh, and that was probably a studio added thing. Yeah, you know, I think that's exactly what it was, because. In this in this opening, you know this 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 crawl, this text crawl, if you will, you know you have so many different you know factors where you know coming in. We're we're introduced to the whole idea of these mnemonic couriers. We are introduced to the idea of NAS, this nerve attenuative syndrome that you know a lot of people are suffering from. We find out about the yakuza. We find out about the low techs, and this is all four different aspects of the story that is thrown at the viewer in a couple paragraphs and I, you know i was talking earlier about how a lot of it went over my head i think this is one of the reasons why <laughs> you know it makes sense now because i've seen it multiple times and i am yeah. you know you know considerably older but at the time this was released i can you know i can only imagine people were sitting in the theater saying okay what you know can we rewind this <laughs> like yeah yeah and i think that's another case of like movie studios and, and uh, you know, suits for lack of a better word, you know, not giving audiences credit for, you know, how intelligent they can be. And I mean, that's yeah. not to say that every movie moviegoer out there is, you know, 
Einstein, but I think a lot of times, um, you know, films get dumbed down too much. No, no. Yeah, no, I, I agree. You know, and the film, I said this earlier, but, you know, the film is building this futuristic world with all of these, you know, all of these ideas and all of these eccentric, these original, you know, they're eccentric, but they are just such original characters that, again, I, I almost wonder if this idea would have been serviced so much better as as a series or at the very least a mini series you know can you imagine mm -hmm. if something like this was on okay we were talking about about the sci-fi channel now but if something like this was put out on hbo or you know cinemax back in the 90s you know i think that would have been really cool oh totally totally uh, and 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 it's funny um you know this opening sequence after the crawl you get johnny in the uh the, you know, the hotel room, you know, waking up and it, and it's funny that, you know, some of the technology here, you know, you see what, what they were sort of alluding to, you know, our future being, um, yet he's still using, um, a remote control, um, to interact with a lot of things. Whereas, you know, a lot of that stuff nowadays is like voice controlled. I know. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the opening scene you have to laugh at, but you know you do. We were talking about just how cool Keanu Reeves is, and how cool is it that when his character is introduced on screen, he's in bed with some random gal who I don't. I don't even think he gets her name, but she no. she leaves him as well. So I guess I guess I guess Johnny was the booty call, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and uh, my biggest uh you know takeaway from that scene now is his extreme lack of sideburns like it's like almost yes. an anti anti sideburn which is just really off putting <laughs> it, it's it's i noticed that as well yeah his haircut is interesting but i think that is one of the things at the time when they were making this the costume designers makeup artists whatever were like oh no this is the future and so the the cool guys in the future do not have sideburns. So, you know. <laughs> and that's funny because, you know, I guess you were, you know, that was kind of the tail end of like the Beverly Hills 90210 era where you had like the Luke Perry sideburns. So I almost wonder if that was like a response to that. Like, oh, sideburns are huge now. They won't be big 20 years from now. <laughs> <laughs> the other takeaway from that opening scene is. You know, at some point before now in 2021, we're going to go back to square televisions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. And tube TVs. If you know, if yes. you noticed in the, uh, in heaven as, as visually appealing as, as heaven is, yeah, it's just tube TVs all stacked up on, on one another. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> but you know, this is, like I said, this is Keanu being Keanu. Um, I feel that the stereotype pertaining to Keanu over the years, especially around this time, is pretty much on display here. I mean, we were talking about John Wick and how, you know, if you watch John Wick 1 and 2, he, like you said, he has become su such a great actor over the years, but around this time, he's still working with that, that surfer dude speech, and there's not a heck of a lot of inflection and emotion to his delivery. A few, a few scenes with standing, which we'll get to, but I, I can't help but wonder if w when people would, would mock him or make fun of him back in the nineties. If this was the film that they would show, you know, as their, uh, as, as their tool for, for, for mock and poor Keanu. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely has a lot of, uh, a lot of mockable parts. Uh, but yeah, we, we first meet Keanu. He is, he is Johnny mnemonic. Uh, we learned that he is a courier in this post-apocalyptic world, and the, the world is ridden by this disease that we discussed, uh, nerve attenuation syndrome, also known as NAS. 
And yeah, this this whole aspect about the virus was not in the initial story, I believe. No, it, it wasn't. That was something that Gibson developed for for the movie. And I will, ha- I, I do have to say one thing. And uh, I used to do, and it, it's kind of on hiatus now. But I used to do a a books versus movie podcast called Big Screen Book Club um, that I only did a couple episodes of, but, which I'm looking to to revisit. But um, and one of the things that we would do in that movie is we you know we'd read the book and then we'd watch the movie and then we'd sort of compare and contrast and have a discussion about the similarities, the differences, what worked, what didn't, didn't. And I, I think, you know, anytime a, a, a story or a book is adapted, um, it's, it, it's a challenge. And the fact that William Gibson wasn't afraid to sort of, uh, you know, make major changes to his story. Um, I think it speaks to him as a, as a writer and also, you know, uh, it also speaks to his his you know ability to identify um, what works in certain mediums that might not work in another. Yeah, that, that's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. You know, and I would, I, as I was watching this, I found the whole idea of this of this NAS you know um, plot device as 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 being fairly original. And I, I wanted to know more about it. I almost think that again, we we talked about all these various characters and these. These, this world that they're building that isn't really being serviced well with the, with, the, with the running time that it is. But I almost wanted to know more about this, this particular disease, how people get it, how, you know, they're afflicted with it. Because all we really see in the film is you, you know that it's NAS and you just see various individuals shaking with this particular disease, one of which is the bodyguard character, Jane. Yeah. But the, the other thing is, um, there's a scene later in the movie where, you know, Henry Rollins refers to what, oh, you know, half the population having it. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, that would mean that like every other character we see in the movie should have it. And really the only character, um, you know, that we really get to deal with is Jane. And, and it doesn't seem like anybody else is affected by it. <laughs> no, it, it really doesn't. Yeah. So, so. That that was kind of one of my small gripes. I mean, it is a plot device in the film. I mean, let's face it. But I would have wanted. To, I I wish we would have gotten a little more, a little more, you know, with it. But in any case, regarding these couriers, valuable information is carried in the brains of these couriers, and this is one of the things about the film that I just love. You know, Johnny is one such courier, and we learn that he is losing memory space due to all of the information he has uploaded into his head. I think this is such a great concept, and, and it's still so original. I mean, I think it was original in 1995. I think it was almost a little too original that audiences back then didn't know how to comprehend it. But you look at it nowadays. I'll give you an example. My, my daughter today was playing on the iPad, and as mm-hmm. she was playing on the iPad, she wanted to she wanted to download a, a new game, a new app. And so we tried to download it, and, and we were told, you know, there's not enough room on this device for this. So we had to go back through and we had to delete various apps and various games to clear up the space to, yeah. to download this new game. And you think about this and I, I just, I just love the whole concept, the idea of the human brain being utilized as a hard drive. I think that is so original. And the fact that in order for him to store this data, like I was having to delete various apps and everything, he's mm-hmm. having to delete his memories. I think that is just such a cool concept. Oh, yeah, totally. And how mind-blowing in 1995 was the idea of 160 gigabytes worth of data. 
I know. <laughs> that was, was going to be one of the things I was going to bring up. But yeah, you know, Johnny has accepted his latest job. And the job is, you know, he has a storage capacity of 160 gigabytes. But this job that he has, he needs 320 gigabytes for this latest mission. Um, highly valuable information. And we know this because members of the Yakuza have arrived to steal this information. And he needs to escort this information. We don't know what this information is, but I don't know if you were like me and you were thinking, okay, we were just told about NAS. It's got to be relate, related to that in some kind of way. Um, and, yeah. you know, we get to meet some of the villains of the film. Is there anything you wanted to add about that? No, I, you know, it, it, it's I, I really, really have always enjoyed sort of the opening um, moments of this film. And, you know, it's kind of got like... Uh, a John Woo feel when they, or uh, even like a, a Tony Scott sort of true romance vibe. Um, even though I'm sure true romance was probably right around this same time. Um, but you know, just, you know, the, you know, the big sweet like hotel room um, with, you know, just lots of guns. And um, I, I really, really enjoy uh, the, the two sort of suits in that scene. And, um, the one with the longer hair, I remember from the nineties, um, seeing in a lot of stuff, including, and I don't know if you remember this, but there was a series of books written by William Shatner, um, called, uh, tech war. And they actually mm -hmm. turned those into a USA, um, television series after they made a, a, a TV movie, uh, which starred Greg Evigan and, uh, the long haired Asian guy in, in Johnny mnemonic here, he was sort of the main villain of tech war. So it, it, it's kind of cool watching older movies because you remember these sort of actors that have sort of come and gone, but you remember when you saw them a lot, uh, you know, in different things when, you know, right, uh, you know, around the time a movie was made. Yeah, and it's – God, I haven't thought about Tech War in years, but um, <laughs> one of the big ways I remember Tech War is, as you mentioned, it, it was Greg Evigan, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and before he did Tech War, wasn't he on My Two Dads? Yes, and then before that, BJ and the Bear. <laughs> right, so – Yeah, we went to the same high school. Oh, really? Years apart, obviously, but yeah. Were there pictures of him up on the up on the, <laughs> the, the walls? No, actually, and he wasn't even the most famous alumni. Uh, John Bon Jovi graduated about 10 years before me, so he was sort of the uh, the talk of the town uh, in my high school. But but, but you know what I, I, I think is funniest about this, this scene is when Johnny comes in the hotel room, there's probably, what, uh, a half dozen guys with guns that all sort of jump to attention, and he's got his briefcase. For whatever reason, I'm not sure. Oh, I, I guess it's got all of Johnny's gear that he needs to sort of do the upload, but he makes a really quick motion, um, which you don't think you'd want to do when there's a, a room full of guys with guns and then sort of makes that joke about delivering a pizza. That was nice. I think that was a combination of it's the nineties. We have Keanu. I can't help, but a line like that was, was maybe not so much ad libbed, but at the last minute phase of, <laughs> of when they have, when they realize, okay, we have Keanu, you know, here in the film, because I can't imagine, okay, Val Kilmer, I can't, I can't <laughs> imagine him delivering that line that way. But I wanted to ask you real quick, what do you think about the score to this film? Because I think the score, I mean, it is, it is an animal of its own. I think it is, you know, it, it's letting you know that it is a, a sci-fi movie, but the score to the film is, 
It, it's an odd one. Would you agree? Yeah, um, but I gotta say this: uh, as as odd as it is, I, I I I never really found it to be a distraction, which I think is you know sort of the best compliment I could give it. Um, and it's one of those things where you wonder if that score was removed from the movie, it would really change the feel of that film. Yeah. And see, I was wondering if this was something, say, for example, if it was at Carlco Studios and if they had given the film more of an action of an of an actiony score, something that came from, you know, out of the, the Joel Silver wheelhouse, if you will. Yeah. How, Jerry Goldsmith with the percussion. Yeah, sure. How, how the, the film would play. I don't know. Mm hmm. So, yeah. But yeah, like we talked, uh, Johnny needs to escort this information to New York, to Newark, excuse me. Um, and we get to meet some of the some of the villains of the film. Uh, the, there are many villains in the film. Um, but the the head of the Yakuza is played by great actor uh, Beat Takeshi. And his yes. second in command is this lethal assassin. Again, talk about an original concept. I, I love this villain. His second in command is this assassin who has this laser wire that ejects from a thumb device on his thumb. That is original, something that I don't think we've seen emulated or, you know, copied in films today. No, and 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 you almost wonder how a device like that works. Um, and especially at the end of the movie, I started wondering how exactly it works. But I also like the idea that... Um, Takashi makes a reference at one point to him turning his shame into an asset, which I think is a great character building moment. And it, and it almost makes you think that for some reason, um, this guy's thumb was taken. And I guess in that culture, um, that's a way of marking you as something. Um, what was your takeaway from that? You know, I didn't even think about that as well, because, you know, I, I had gotten done watching, you know, Showdown in Little Tokyo uh, you know, Black Rain, all these films that that you know tackled the whole idea of the yakuza, and the the big idea is that they will um, that they they take a finger or two as as like a uh, as a way of of penance for a wrong or an error that they did. I actually just watched a few weeks ago a film that's on Netflix with Jared Leto called The Outsider, where he he is a uh, he's an American who enters the the world of the yakuza, and there is a scene that is. This horrifying to watch, um, but yeah, he is he is you know giving his apology and he cuts off a couple of his fingers. So I could see that as possibly being related in some kind of way. But I guess if that was the case, wouldn't the wouldn't the device be on his pinky? I would say, or I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it just seemed like a really interesting line, and 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 again, that's one of the things um, that I think you know is kind of cool about this movie and you alluded to it earlier is, you know, you just get these, these characters that aren't, aren't necessarily essential. And this character is essential, but you sort of get a throwaway detail that, you know, almost makes you want to find out more about, you know, how, you know, he ended up where he was with this device. And I, I know that uh, <laughs> I, I have to apologize for continually uh, bringing this up, but again, if this was a series then I could see all sorts of original, or even if it was a comic book series, I could see all sorts of these original villains. But I, I honestly think that if this film was done today, in my opinion, at least, if this film was done today and made, I don't think you'd get villains like this. You, maybe you'd get one, 
but you would not get villains that were as as vastly different and apart from one another. You, you know what I mean? I, I, I think that by today's standards, what we have coming out of Hollywood in, in terms of action, you know, it, it's we would like I said earlier, we'd get more of a kind of cliche stock characters. And there's, you know, Gibson is again, I don't I don't know what his headspace was when he was making this, but I like I like thinking the idea that he was thinking, okay, if I'm gonna do one film and this is gonna be my one shot, I'm gonna put all of these ideas that I have from my various stories into this into this one melting pot and I'm gonna try and make it work. Yeah, totally. It's almost I almost wonder if it was something he sort of had back pocketed in case for whatever reason he ever got to make a Bond movie. You know, that's it's such a yeah. such a Bond villain trope. Yeah, no, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, but these are these are these are all, you know, excellent Bond villains, you know. So, and we we I mean, and this film is and we have such great character actors in the film. Shortly after the scene, we get to meet the character of Ralphie played by Udo Kier. What are your thoughts on Udo Kier? I love Udo Kier. And uh, this was sort of around the time that he started to sort of have a a second career sort of explosion. I guess he had made, you know, those um, those movies with, I guess, but um, with Andy Warhol. Um, yeah. And um, but, uh, you know, he also did a couple of years after this. He did Blade. Um, and Udo Kier was an actor that I used to love to see pop up in movies. Um, I guess starting with Johnny Mnemonic and then, you know, Blade after it. And then, uh, you know, all the other movies he's done since then. And um, I love Udo Kier. And I think the um, the character of Ralphie is, is, a, is a great character. And I think we lose him too early. Um, but sadly, I don't really think there's much more they could have done with him. Um, yeah. But as much as I said that, you know, there's just the right amount of street preacher in this movie, I'm not sure there's enough Ralphie. No, there's really not, especially when you're going to cast someone like Udo Kier, because the guy just just exudes such creepiness. I mean, <laughs> you know, he's just he's just so slimy every time he's on screen. And I'm trying to think of the last film that I saw Udo Kier in, and 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 I don't think I can think of it. The, the 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 only one that's popping up to my recollection is back in 2004, 2005. He mm-hmm. did the Ben Affleck. A comedy surviving Christmas. He popped up in yes. that real quick, but that's the last thing I remember seeing him in. Yeah. I'm going to have to go look at that when we, when we're done recording, but I got to tell you this, um, a couple of years ago, probably eight, eight or nine years ago, one of the other things I miss about New Jersey. Um, and I, and I promise I'll try and make this the last personal reference I make to New Jersey. Um, since we are going to get to Newark in this movie, um, you know, New Jersey, as opposed to Las Vegas is really great for celebrity conventions. Um, and they do a couple in Jersey. They do like the chiller theater and monster mania. And, uh, one year Udo Kier was, was at, um, one of those conventions and I got to meet him and get a picture with him. And, uh, yeah. Uh, but the amazing thing is, and I don't know how he, how he worked on the film sets, um, but when I met him, he didn't speak, uh, much English at all. Um, in, in fact, my memory of us meeting, um, was he was, I think speaking Italian and, uh, even getting him to spell my name correctly on the, uh, the autograph picture I got was a little bit of a, a little bit of a, you know, a, a challenge to, uh, to make sure he spelled it correctly. Oh, that is cool. Well, 
I, I need to see that picture. So <laughs> if, I, if you I will don't send mind email that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, Udo Kier plays the character of Ralphie. This is Johnny's agent, I guess, of sorts, who kind of helps him schedule his data pickups. And he's also the agent for these freelance bodyguards who appear to be half human, part machine. Again, <laughs> such mm-hmm. original characters being thrown in because I almost wonder if there's if there's too much. I mean, who, who would have thought that in this film with mnemonic couriers and the Yakuza that you also have these these bodyguards that are part man, part machine. I mean, it's a really cool uh, little aspect. And the fact that that they made them female, you know, mm-hmm. I, I guess two of them are female. I, I, I think that right there is an original, original touch. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. And, and I, I think you said, you know, earlier that you know they they do squeeze a lot of concepts into a ninety minute movie, and uh, it, you know, there's a lot of world building here, and and there's a, a lot of you know sort of opportunities that are sort of created for you to to think about that universe after you leave the theater. Yeah, one of these bodyguards is the character of Jane, who is portrayed by Dina Meyer. I think she's probably mm-hmm. best known today for the film Starship Troopers. Uh, but yeah. she is an aspiring bodyguard for Ralphie, who is looked down upon because her upgrades were done on the streets by this underground doctor known as Spider. Um, the, the one thing that I do kind of have to laugh at is Dina Meyer, you know, I think she's great in the film. She looks great. And she she's always been an actress who I think just has always been able to play tough really, really mm-hmm. well. But I do have to laugh when I watch the film because what was it about four or five years later? She was playing a high school senior in Starship Troopers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's one of the big critiques of that movie, uh, but very, very funny. Um, I love the interaction between uh, Jane and and Ralphie and uh, his two bodyguards. Who, you know, Jane talks about how uh, how how they're aging out; they're kind of too old to be effective bodyguards. Um, and Ralphie keys in on the idea that she's got this condition um, and asks her to put her hand out. Um, and she says, okay. And she does it. And then, um, he just says, keep holding it. Um, and I, I think this is probably, uh, with the exception of the Dolph stuff, I think that this scene, um, is probably the best collective acting that we get. It almost seems like it belongs in another movie. You're right. You're right. I mean, cause I mean, each one of these, each one of these side characters or one of these little stories I feel could be a separate movie in itself and Mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding, this is one of the biggest differences from the short story, from the source material to the film, but the character of Jane in the, in the source material was known as Monty, excuse me, Molly millions, um, also known as razor girl. And she was again, a genetically enhanced bodyguard, but she has these uh, razor sharp blades that protract from her fingernails. I guess they could not use that character entirely faithfully because that character was still, uh, if, if my understanding is correct, that character was still owned uh, by mm-hmm. a separate studio that had plans of doing something with that particular character. So they essentially kind of had to take some of the originality out, you know, and and trans, you know, when they when they translate it to screen. And so that's why she's just referred to as simply Jane. But like you said, I think that would have been a really cool movie 
to to watch just this this bodyguard who is who is not uh who's kind of looked down upon by her peers because her upgrades were were done on the streets and she's trying to make a name for herself. I think that right there is is a cool concept that could be a film or a spin-off yeah. film. Uh-huh. Yeah. And one of the cool things about that character in the in the short story um, and that character, I believe the reason they, they couldn't use her was um, that character also shows up in uh, his novel uh, Neuromancer. And I, I believe somebody else had the had optioned the rights to that novel. Um, so that character um, wasn't able to be sort of utilized. But the character in the short story, she had some kind of enhancement that um created um mirror shades without wearing glasses um they came out i guess um above or below her eyes um and and created um basically sunglasses which i remember when i read the story i thought was a really really cool idea that is a cool idea even by today's standards i i i'd love to see that um and so it's a shame that they had to had to rework that but then again i almost feel that if they added you know all that flair from that character if they if they were entirely 100 percent faithful to the character if the film would be even more of i don't want to say a mess but if, if it would be difficult to balance that character mixed with everything else yeah no yeah i i, I think you're right and um if i if i remember the story correctly she was almost the the main character of the story and uh you know uh, you know we sort of follow that Johnny Johnny's journey in that in that novel through through her eyes and and you know sort of she's the the main the main catalyst of the story. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you that. Yeah, because that's what I read as well is that she was apparently more the main character, which makes sense because I, I guess in in the source material she was more the muscle, whereas Johnny was more more the brains, which you know is ironic when you look at it, considering it's it's his brain that. <laughs> that 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 is so valuable um yeah a lot of the reviews pointed out something that that i always thought as well is johnny needs a bodyguard to assist and protect him i always thought this was a really cool relationship interplay between the two is that he needs someone to protect him as he is on his mission uh you know to, to get to newark and jane she is this bodyguard he needs the work she needs the work excuse me he needs a bodyguard so they kind of form this alliance but it's odd considering that it seems like Johnny does more saving of Jane than she does of him. <laughs> <laughs> that is an excellent point. Um, but I will say one of the one of the, the things I really liked about um, a, about how they sort of connect is it kind of shows how. Oh, God, I'm trying to find the right word for it. But, you know, how she's sort of a go getter. So and, you know, I think her her hatred of Ralphie. Um, or her desire to work for Ralphie and her hatred of the other two bodyguards um, sort of encourages her to sort of follow along as she sees what's happening with with Johnny and sort of injects herself into it. And without even knowing um, what Johnny's involvement with Ralphie is, um, she decides that, hey, this is my opportunity to prove myself or it's this is something I'm going to do just to sort of piss off Ralphie. And I, and I thought that was a really clever way to hook the two of them up. I, you know, I thought that as well. I, I wrote that down as well as I, I thought that was, that was a really cool, again, unique original way to, to have 
her enter the picture. It, it feels it feels extremely organic and seamless, just the the way she pops in. I mean, because if you look at a lot of the a lot of the action films from the eighties and the nineties, the hero was always teamed up with a female. You know, he always had a female um, you know assistant on the way to kind of assist him in you know his uh, in his mission, if you will. And so you watch these films. You know, if you look at say, for example, Commando. There's really no need for for Arnold to be teamed up with Ray Don Chong. <laughs> you know, if you watch uh, uh, another Arnold film, The Running Man, there's really no need for Maria Conchita Alonso to, <laughs> you know, to be in the film. But this feels this feels natural. And this 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 alliance that they have works. Yeah. We also meet again. This film has character actors galore. <laughs> so as they team up. We meet another character in the film. We get to meet the Lotex, okay? And the leader of the Lotex is J-Bone. We're told in that opening that opening crawl at the beginning of the film that the Lotex are this underground resistance group who are uh, planning an uprising against the corporations who are oppressing the world, one of, one of which corporations is Pharmacon. And so the leader of these Lotex is J-Bone, played by Ice-T, and... Ice T is playing Ice T. I, I don't think I've ever seen Ice T play anything but this particular character. Yeah, and and and, and it's funny to see sort of the pre uh, Law and Order um, Ice T, you know, where he was still trying to make a go out of it as a as as a film actor. And and I got to say that you know you talked about um, Keanu Reeves and sort of his natural swagger or coolness and i think that's something that that ice t has as well and uh oh yeah you know and i think that's why you always get ice t when you hire him because i think if you ask him to approach it differently than he would um it, you wouldn't have ice t and then at that point you might as well just hire another actor oh no i think roles are maybe not so much written for him but i think when Ice T is brought in for a film. the The character is rewritten, you know, to to compensate and to work with him. Because, yeah, like you said, he has this he has this swagger about him that is that is really cool to see. Mm -hmm. And this is, if I'm if I'm correct, is this around the time he did Surviving the Game? I, mean, I think that's within I think that so. same period, right? Uh -huh. I would say Surviving the Game is probably one of his best best pieces, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Well, that and and I've always had a, a soft spot for New Jack City. That's right. Yeah, I, I keep forgetting he was in that. But yeah, that was that was a uh, that was the film that actually first put him on the map and let people know that this rapper could in fact act and you know be a presence on screen. Yeah. Now, did you notice on your initial viewing um, that we had seen J Bone in Beijing? No. Yeah, there's a scene where Johnny's waiting to get on the elevator and uh, the TV broadcast is interrupted by um, sort of this digital um, image that, you know, tells people to take back their brains or something like that. Right. And it it kind of okay. introduces the idea of the um, the low techs, which, you know, I, I think it's a, a kind of cool little Easter egg, you know, before we get to meet him. And it shows that somehow with these satellites, they're able to send information uh one of the interesting things it created for me was the idea that there's some kind of global uh 
television network going on or were they just de deciding to uh, hack into the TV system in Beijing? Um, <laughs> and I don't want to get down a whole side discussion here, but um, that created a really interesting um, you know, question for me, because like I said, right now, you know, the TV what we watch here in America is very different than the TV I'm sure they have over in Beijing. Yeah, you know, I, I, I it's funny you mentioned that because I did notice that. But what I was thinking as I was watching just the whole character of Ice-T and, you know, the way he hacks into to the, to the TV and, you know, trying to, you know, let people know to, you know, take back their their lives and everything. I can't help but wonder, I don't know if you saw a film just under about 10 years ago with Gerard Butler called Gamer. I don't, I don't know if you remember when that came out or if you saw that or not. Um, I remember when it came out. I don't think I've seen it. Well, there is there is a, a, a side plot in that film that pretty much lifts that entire idea out. You know, this this underground resistance group who is hacking into hacking into the virtual reality. People are addicted to these these games, you know, um, avatar type games. And so, yeah, he leads this group of of resistance rebels who are hacking in and trying to, you know, encourage individuals, encourage people to take back their take back their life take back their their planet if you will but what's funny is that that character in gamer is played by ludicrous so another rapper and so so i can't help but wonder if neville dean and taylor when they wrote and directed gamer if they were in fact big fans of johnny mnemonic and they kind of wanted to pay homage to 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 the film i don't know yeah, well, those two dudes look like they'd be the type of filmmakers that would have been, um, you know, fans of Johnny Mnemonic. Oh yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, they they are uh, they they've always been on their own their own path, and you know, they they have definitely their own style, and yeah, they they don't like to adhere to what is the norm in Hollywood. So I can I can certainly see them wanting to, you know, they had this film that they put out in the mainstream in theaters. And yeah, they wanted, you know, Johnny Mnemonic was a film of theirs that, that they loved. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I could certainly see that as well. Why do you think uh, J-Bone was just randomly hanging out at the top of an abandoned building with, uh, with a sidekick? I don't know. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Plot convenience, I guess. That, that's my only guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you'd think they would kind of just hang out up uh, in the safety of, of, um, of heaven, right? You, you would think, but yeah, I, I thought his entrance in the film does not feel as natural as as the character of Jane. You know, he, he feels like he's kind of obligatory thrown in because they need to get to the third act, you know, pretty quickly. And they, you know, they're, they're almost kind of sprinting, you know, story-wise to that. But, but yeah, I, I wondered that as well. But in mm -hmm. any case, Johnny needs a computer to assist him in getting information about what exactly it is that he's storing. And so enter the virtual reality of the film. Now this came out about a, what, two, three years, I'd say after the lawnmower man. So yeah. if you remember lawnmower man was the first, the first real movie I'd say that tackled the whole concept of virtual reality. And so when Johnny Mnemonic came out, virtual reality, reality, was still this uh, still a relatively new and, and groundbreaking technology that Hollywood was attempting to tap into and you know trying to make look cool and and new and innovative. But if you look at these scenes 
by today's standards, they they come off as as a little humorous. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the time, it was considered cool looking. Um, but you know, when we have Johnny enter cyberspace to figure out what exactly it is, you know, he's essentially what deciphering various puzzles and breaking codes. But all we really see are these virtual reality hands trying to you know navigate through these puzzles. The scene doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I mean, we really, as a viewer, even by today's standards, you really don't know what what he's doing in this scene. We know that he's trying to break the codes and he's trying to you know, hack the system, but it's one of my small, small gripes about the film, but I don't know if it plays exactly coherently. Yeah, well, and then also you have to, like, wonder, like, so he eventually can't figure it out on his own, and he 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 goes to a, another hacker um, who's got a lot more information about what's going on than Johnny does, and you almost wonder how, if this information is supposed to be so secret the the information that johnny's carrying how does this random hacker um sort of you know have a pretty good idea of what's going on exactly i i I think in in some aspects you know the the whole idea and story conceit is almost is almost ahead of itself in a lot of the Mm -hmm. way in a lot of ways to where from script writing standpoint maybe they didn't they didn't know how to catch up with how with how ahead of it was at the time. But yeah, I wonder that as well. Mm-hmm. It's about 45 minutes, maybe close to an hour into the film that we meet our man of the hour, you know, our, our subject of this podcast. We meet Dolph Lundgren. Um, 43 minutes. Lundgren. I, I, I stopped to check. 43 minutes. Okay. I, I figured it was, it was just almost about an hour. Yeah. 43 minutes in the film. We get to meet Dolph Lundgren again. The individual who was second build in the film, <laughs> he is playing a villain for the third time in his career. You know, he he got his career start playing Ivan Drago. Second time playing a villain was Universal Soldier. Again, one of his films that, you know, made it to theaters and cracked a dent in, at the box office. So this is his third time playing a villain. And boy, oh boy, this villain is out there. I, I would say this is... I don't know if it's one of my favorite roles of, of Lundgren. I'll, I'll say that now, mainly just because it is so disturbing. I mean, he Lundgren plays the character of the street preacher, who's also known as Carl, which I thought, <laughs> I thought was kind of funny. He's, he's known as beat Takeshi calls him Carl, but to, to everyone else, he's known as the street preacher. He is, this is probably one of the most original characters in the film that again, I wonder if he belongs in a different film. He is this psycho religious bounty hunter with cybernetic body parts. He kills Mm -hmm. all in the name of Jesus. And apparently he uses the the money that he, that he gets from these, from these kills he uses to transform his body. And so J bone makes a statement that I wrote down that I thought was pretty funny. Uh, He says that mofo got God and technology ass backwards. He'll kill anybody for money just to keep his body full of implants. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I I love this character. I love this character back then. And I love this character now. And I think um, in addition to being terrifying, like you said, um, it's just weird. Um, yeah. You know, you have to wonder where this concept came from. It almost seems like, you know, you have random ideas written down on a piece of, on, on, you know, 
various scraps of paper and you sort of throw them up in the air and and just pick the you know three random pieces of paper and connect them and then you've got your character i mean i i can't even imagine where william gibson pulled this character from but uh i'm glad he did i'm glad he did as well i mean because this is this is probably the most original character i think lundgren has ever played no doubt i mean but but his scenes are disturbing and they are nasty i mean i just the 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 scene his second scene in the film i mean He's really only in, I, I counted, I don't know if you did as well, but he's really only in four scenes in the film. Yeah, I would have I would have guessed three, yeah. Yeah, three or four scenes. So if you total his screen time up, he's in the film, what would you say, maybe 10, 12 minutes, if that? Yeah, and that's being, I think that's being generous. But you remember him. I mean, you know, the, the his second scene in the film is, is the one that I think is just so disturbing. He uh, He walks into the bar of trying to find uh, Johnny as well as Jane. And he grabs the bartender's robotic hand, puts it in the, uh, in the ice and then just smashes it. I mean, it is just so cruel and so sick and so nasty, but you remember it. I mean, he's frightening. Yeah. And well, and that bartender, God, that's another scene where the acting is, is at another level because uh, I forgot the name of that actor, but he's tremendous. And, uh, when when uh, the, the preacher puts his his hand in that that uh that ice and then smashes it and he says oh why'd you do that like um it's just such a great delivery and uh yeah that is that scene has a lot of tension as well it has a lot of tension and he later crucifies henry rollins's spider character i mean like you said i love the idea that that william gibson just had all these various characters floating around and he just decided yeah, street preacher. I'll put him in here as well. You know, I mean, he's like like we said earlier. You could take this character out of the film, and the film would still work. I I, I don't know if if street preacher really. To be honest, I don't even know if street preacher really belongs in this film in the in the first place. But man, I I, I think street preacher is what makes this film stand out and what makes it memorable because this is this is an original role for Dolph. I can see why Dolph took on this role because it is just so out there. Yeah. And, and uh, I've, I've sort of talked about this on other episodes of movie podcasts that I've done where, um, you know, take, and, and I apologize if my dogs are distracting. If you have another actor or I, I can't picture another actor playing this character, which I think speaks to, how original the character is, but then also how effective Dolph's performance is. And like I said, I can't even, I can't even think of anybody else that was working at this time that could have done in this role, what Dolph did. Well, this is, I was going to say that this is, in my opinion, this is extremely inspired casting when you think about it, because I can't, I mean, there are some other actors out there. I mean, you know, say for example, John Malkovich, I think John Malkovich could have done a role like this and, you know, he, you know, he would have, he would have done it as well. But Dolph is just, first of all, the guy is six foot five or whatever. I mean, he is, he is huge. He is physically fit. He is built. And, you know, he comes in just with this long beard. I mean, I distinctly remember when this came out in theaters, I went to see it because I read Lundgren was in the film and that he played the street preacher. And that first scene when he comes on screen, and he is praying, you have to do a double take. It's like, whoa, that that's Dolph Lundgren. I mean, you know, yeah. and the fact that he took a chance like this 
on on a roll at this point in his career, I have to give him a lot of credit for it because if you compare Lundgren with, say, for example, Sly, say, for example, or, or uh, you know, Schwarzenegger, you know, Lundgren was always kind of put in that category of those muscle-bound action heroes. And you wouldn't have seen Stallone take on a take on this, an eccentric villain or just a, just a crazy whacked out character like this. You wouldn't have seen Schwarzenegger take on, you know, a, a particular character like this Van Damme still, you know, I don't think we would see him. I, I well, I take that back in recent years, Van Damme has, has, you know, branched out and taken on some, some eccentric roles. But at this time, the fact that Lundgren, you know, went from doing universal soldier, then he did a couple direct to video pieces to something like this. Mm-hmm. That says a lot about his acting style and who he is. Yeah, yeah. And just um, sort of, you know, um, also being um, adventurous, too, um, which I think is one of the things a lot of actors sort of avoid is, you know, sort of just, you know, doing things outside of their comfort zone. Yeah. So, you know, regarding Stallone and regarding Schwarzenegger and Van Damme, you know, they have since in the later years, more recent years, they've they've played um, odd, interesting little villains with quirks to them. But they they did those within the past 10 years. The fact that that Dolph took this chance and taken on this this role 23 years ago, I, I, I'm still I'm still in awe of this. Yeah, no, I, w- I would agree. So like I said earlier, you know, each of these villains, each one is unique. The film is almost similar to a video game. The heroes progressing to the next level with the boss at the end to face, and yeah, and and Lundgren's street preacher character is essentially the final boss in the film. Before we get to the the final act and the final battle and everything, you know, no no analysis and discussion of this film would be complete if we do not <laughs> if we do not discuss Johnny's breakdown of sorts that he has <laughs> on top of the trash heap. He gives a fantastic monologue that has become the stuff of legend on mm-hmm. YouTube. What, what would you like to say about his monologue? Oh, it, it, it's amazing. And I, and I, and I think late in the film, it gives a lot of insight into Johnny's character and it sort of showcases, you know, how you know, it really defines that character too late in the movie, in my opinion, but um, yeah. it really gives um, it's, it's by far uh, Keanu Reeves best moment in the film. And um, I think it's the only moment where we really get some genuine, um, you know, emotion out of, out of the character. But I, I love the moment where he pauses to tuck his shirt in. Um, yes. And straighten his belt. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a great detail and I'm not sure who came up with it. It it almost feels like it was, it almost feels like it was an action that was written into uh, the script. So I almost wonder if it's sort of a William Gibson thing, but either way, I think that detail is great. And I, and I, I, again, I just really feel like it's unfortunate because it really defines that character. And one of my biggest problems with this movie um, from a storytelling perspective is you know, Johnny is overall a pretty selfish guy and we, we get, you know, glimpses of it when he's hesitant to sort of sacrifice himself for the greater good. Um, but then it also, I, I kind of feel like 
that's what makes sort of the romantic aspect of this movie a little disingenuous too, because I don't really see, you know, why Jane would end up being attracted to somebody like that. But I don't want to get too far off, off our, our, our initial discussion here, which is um, how great that sort of uh, that, that speech is. And I, and I, I can't wait to hear your take on it. Well, no. And I was actually going to play uh, that speech uh, right now for everyone. Oh, sweet. What the fuck is going on? You know, all my life, I've been careful to stay in my own corner. Looking out for number one, no complications. Now suddenly, I'm responsible for the entire fucking world. And everybody and his mother is trying to kill me. If, if my head doesn't blow up first. Maybe it's not just about you anymore. Listen. You listen to me. You see that city over there? That's where I'm supposed to be. Not down here with the dogs and the garbage and the fucking last month's newspapers blowing back and forth! I've had it with them! I've had it with you! I've had it with all this... I want room service! I want the club sandwich. I want the cold Mexican beer. I want a $10,000 a night hooker. I want my shirts laundered. Like they do at the Imperial Hotel. Tokyo. Yeah, I, I, I think I think personally, I think the monologue is is hilarious. You know, I remember when it came out, I remember the the theater, you know, laughing at it. And, you know, like I said, it has become it's become the stuff of uh, of YouTube legend. You know, pe- people love looking at it. But like you said, I, you have to appreciate it because I, I think the I think the character is is really saying something here. And, you know, I mean, we, we kind of glossed over it, actually. But we find out that the data that Keanu Reeves is carrying is actually the cure. Uh, we, we find out that Pharmacon, one of these corporations, you know, in order to make money is actually purposely keeping people sick, which, again, I think is another pretty timely uh, you know, concept that you, know, you hear mm-hmm. about in the news nowadays. I don't want to get too far off course, but I think that that is a concept that's a little ahead of its time as well. But it turns out that he was... His goal was to get this information to, in fact, the low techs, to the resistance group, so then that way they could, they could process this information and take down Pharmacon and get the cure out there, you know, out there to the general public and, you know, and cure everyone. And so you have Johnny's character who is, you know, he's basically been told that he is the savior of humanity, and he doesn't want that. He doesn't want that kind of responsibility. He wants to be a normal guy who wants the club sandwich, the cold Mexican beer, the $10,000 a night hooker. I don't know how many regular people have that lifestyle, but that, <laughs> that is, that is what Johnny wants. And so we see him just have this, this meltdown that as, as I watched it again recently, I think is extremely justified and, and understandable from a character standpoint. 
like you said, I will say the the romance that they that they hint at between he and Jane uh, feels a little off, and I don't I don't think that's entirely necessary. I think the film would have worked actually better if it just ended with them, you know, parting ways. But yeah, no, I I I, I like the scene. Right on, right on. Um, one thing I do love about the ending of this movie is the random characters we get, and we get the two sort of watchmen uh up top and the one that's got a disability of some sort you know sort of explaining his frustration with a a, a potential uh partner um and you know we yeah. it seems like we get way too much details about those guys and then it almost seems comical when a couple of minutes later we get the um the two goons where um the car uh is ejected uh onto one of the goons and his female um, partner, um, you know, sort of freaks out and calls him by name. And it, it it just seemed funny to me that this late in the movie, we're getting introduced to characters that um, they're trying to sort of, you know, sharply define, which um, it, it almost seems like you could have made a whole nother movie with with those two goons leading up to um you know, the climax, uh, at, at the bridge. Yeah. I thought that as well. I, I almost felt like, are, are we in a different movie now? Like I, I just, <laughs> yeah, these, these two, you know, watchmen, as you put it. Yeah. They're, they're talking about, you know, their love lives or whatever. And I get, they're trying to add a little comic relief, but at that point in the film, I don't feel it, it's not coming in at the right point. Speaking about characters that come in the film almost a little too late. I was going to ask you, what are your thoughts on Jones, the decommissioned cybernetic dolphin who was with the Navy? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's such a, a cool character that they set up, especially when they're outside. And, um, you know, James explaining to uh, Johnny that, that Jones will be able to help him. And uh, she says something to the fact of he used to be in the Navy. Um, and then, um, she says, you'll see. And it's such a great setup. And, and, you know, no, going into the movie, I kind of knew the reveal and I'm not, you know, I'm not sure if it was spoiled in the commercials, which it probably was, but, um, I think it's, it's one of, um, you know, her, her better, um, you know, her better scenes in the movie, like I said, where she says, you'll see, and sort of the look on her face, she already knows that Johnny's going to sort of, um, not be too comfortable with the idea of a fish, as Johnny calls him, um, you know, sort of being responsible for getting this data out of his head. Yeah, no, and, and I, I thought it was it was an original idea as well. And I, I apparently, yeah, the 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 idea of Jones, this this cybernetic dolphin who is also a hacker, this is something that carried over from the source material as well. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. So I thought this was a really cool, a really cool character. It's one of the aspects of the film that gets laughed at by today's standards, which I can certainly understand. I can, I can get, um, I, I think it would not come off as, as laughable as it does to many. If Lundgren's street preacher character does not meet his demise by the dolphin. That was one of the things that I thought was, was interesting. It's almost poetic in a sense. Uh, Dolph Lundgren is killed by a dolphin, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> that's great. Um, and, and the other 
interesting thing, and I, and I wanted to get your take on this, is what motivation does the street preacher have at the point in the movie um, where he sort of encounters um, Johnny and Jane? Because do you think he's aware at this point that there's probably potential for him to not get paid? I wondered that as well, because, yeah, Beat Takeshi's character was the one who hired him, and he has died. And so, yeah, the fact that he comes in, I mean, even if he does succeed in his mission, his, you know, the, the person who was paying him is dead. So I can't help but wonder, he doesn't seem to me like, how do I say this without sounding rude? His character to me does not seem as vicious and as frightening as he is. He doesn't seem incredibly bright in, in, in some aspects. And so I kind of wondered if maybe he doesn't know that his, you know, the person who hired him had had met his demise already. Because like you, I was wondering myself, well, this this is kind of odd that he is coming in at this point, considering <laughs> considering his payday already died. Yeah. And and the other question I wondered and and it kind of kind of made me think about potential implants he might have had, but how do you think he got up there? Do you think he had like those, you know, bionic legs that he was able to jump? I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. But and see that that's another one of the things that's a bit of a problem with this film is we are told, OK, he is street preacher and he uses all, all the money that he gets from committing these horrific acts in the name of Jesus is done, you know, to uh, to enhance his body. And so, yeah, he's part he's part man, part machine. But we don't get to see him do anything. We don't get to see anything that is machine even when he is melted when he is burned up by jones as we see you know jones is able to activate the activate the satellite that is able to fry the street preacher wouldn't you think by him getting fried it would be i mean because we see his his corpse and it's all melted skeleton or burned up skeleton excuse me but we'd also see some metal in there as well correct oh totally totally yeah and so i almost feel like that's one aspect that Gibson brought over and I don't know if it was uh if it was due to budgetary reasons or you know or whatnot that they decided to leave that out but yeah I almost feel it's it's a detriment to the film and it's 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 almost unfair to to the viewers to the fans to introduce a character like the street preacher this crazy religious fanatical uh assassin who they establish has bionic limbs or has cybernetic you know uh, you know, implants in him, and we don't get to witness this. I mean, if you if you watch some of the scenes, you notice it really well in the scene where he is getting ready to uh, crucify Henry Rollins's character. We do you do notice on his forearms he has uh, I don't know what you want to call them. We can tell that those are implants there on his forearms because he has like like pieces of metal that are kind of. But uh, but then again, the Jane character also has those on her arms. Right. So, but yeah, that that's a good question. I didn't want, I didn't think that, but now you you have me wondering how he was able to scale that because we saw, we saw the the, the yakuza members. We saw them get up there, and they they had these grappling hooks, if I'm not mistaken, right? To <laughs> to yeah. get up there. Um, how Lundgren was able to do it, but then again, I I I, I kind of get came to this point on a couple episodes again. It's Dolph when when you cast a guy like Dolph. No questions need to be asked. He, you know, <laughs> the, the guy's a badass. So, oh yeah, Lundgren's street preacher character is torched, and the uh, the the cure is able to get 
get released to the masses. Pharmacon is blown up. A lot of big stuff happens here in these final scenes, and it goes a little quickly, but it does end on a happy note. And I and I it it ended differently in the short story. Uh, if you could please, how does it? How does the short story end? The source material. Um, if I recall, Johnny ends up giving up his old life, and he basically takes up with the low techs and uh, becomes a low tech. Okay, and I guess I could see. I mean, they they don't they don't show that in the film, but I guess I you I guess you can think that maybe that's what what Johnny ends up doing. I like to think when I saw this upon its my initial viewing as well as now, I like to think that Johnny says goodbye to the low techs, gets some of his memories back, and he he goes on a vacation. He goes <laughs> to a beach somewhere and has that, that has that Mexican beer. You know, that, that that's kind of what I assumed. But yeah, I guess apparently the initial, yeah, the source material is he takes up with the low techs and he and Jane or Molly, they, they go into business with, uh, they go into business for themselves. They use Jones, the dolphin to, to what help retrieve all traces of the data. And they, they use that to kind of blackmail former clients. Is that right? Mm-hmm. In any case, uh, as we wrap this up, I'm curious. Um, I like to. I always do two recommendations. Uh, one recommendation as a Dolph Lundgren film, and then one recommendation as a film in general. Where does Johnny Mnemonic stand for you, Craig? Oh, oh this is uh, it's it's one or the other, or uh, both actually. Okay. Yeah, no, this is essential Dolph Lundgren viewing, in my opinion, even though you get very little of him. Um, I think it's such a, a different um, side of him, uh, you know, especially if you sort of compare it to, um, you know, uh, an Ivan Drago or something. Um, you know, it's like two sides of a, of a coin. I mean, it's such an extreme difference. And I think it really showcases um, his abilities as a movie. This is one of those movies where you know what, make sure you've got a nice dark living room, watch it at night, watch it with friends, um, and you're going to have a good time. Um, this is a movie that um, I, it had been quite a few years since I had watched it, and I enjoyed watching it this time. And I could see myself sort of, you know, digging out the DVD um, a year from now and watching it again. Um, it's got a lot of problems, but I think the movie's got a enough fun stuff going on that it's it's definitely uh it's definitely worth a worth a watch i i I agree with you i think this is like you said i like how you said it was essential dolph lundgren viewing because yeah this is this is essential i mean anybody who who appreciates the man or anybody who just wants to see a uh a, a rising action star and he wasn't so much rising i think he was you know pretty much solidified at this point but anyone who wants to see a, uh, a muscular action star <laughs> t- take on a role that that no one else would have taken on, you know, within his within his camp. Yeah, I would I would you know put it up there as something that needs to be that needs to be viewed if it hasn't already ASAP because this is like I said I don't know if it's one of my favorite Lundgren roles just because it is you know so out there and disturbing, but it is without a doubt probably his most original and probably one of his most memorable roles. He's only in the film, like we said, maybe 10, 12 minutes, but you remember his scenes because he is just, 
so damn frightening and and <laughs> and just nasty in the film as a film in general you know as a whole it, it's it's an interesting one to to look at because it is it is ahead of its time in in many of its conceits and many of its ideas i almost think it was it's a little too eccentric and out there for mainstream audiences that i wonder if releasing it at the time widely was was the best idea i could see something like this certainly being made nowadays but but i almost wonder if it would even get a a wide release i i think something like this would be better serviced if it was um if it was released as maybe like one of those high high profile on demand releases if you will yeah um or even or even one of the netflix you know sort of netflix you know producing oh. films yeah, I, you, you're exactly right. I didn't even think about this. Yeah, but I could see this being a Netflix original film. Definitely, mm -hmm. I think it would it would be it would be serviced so much better there. But then again, this was 1995. This was right after Speed. This starred Keanu Reeves, and so yeah, it it went wide. With, excuse me, it went wide, which I think was um you know one of the things that that hurt the film. But in any case, I always thought it was, and I distinctly remember this in 1999 when the matrix came out, everybody, you know, the, the matrix did, I feel what Johnny mnemonic could not, not just for the cyberpunk genre, but for Keanu Reeves's career. Yeah. And, and one of the things that was, I remember was interesting when I, I started seeing the, um, the early advertisements for the matrix was, I was like, wow, I can't believe after Johnny mnemonic and its lack of success, um, that Keanu would want to play in that sandbox again. And I guess yeah. he saw, he saw the potential in that script and maybe also really, really wanted to learn Kung Fu. Yeah, I, I think that was, and you know, and a lot of people cite, it's funny you mentioned that because I think a lot of people cite The Matrix as being one of those films that kind of started taking a lot of the, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for, the momentum away from from the likes of Stallone and Schwarzenegger. Because it was around this time, their box office appeal and their, their box office star power was starting to, to wane a bit. Because I think audiences mm -hmm. at this point were... Um, you know, as as it was put by uh, by a co-host in one of the the previous episodes, I think around this time, you know, the likes of Stallone and you know Schwarzenegger, you know, in the eighties and the nineties, audiences loved the idea of, of of watching someone who whose acting maybe was a little rough around the edges, you know, but you know, someone like that kick ass. Around the time of the Matrix, it became it became really um, novel seeing an actor who was an accomplished, who was a good actor, train and do the ass kicking himself. So I think it was films like The Matrix that kind of put the likes of, um, you know, the, those, the, the big muscle guys, you know, that we have this appreciation for, that kind of put them on the back burner. And that's kind of when their, their star power started to, started to wane a bit at the box office. Yeah, totally. And I think it's also one of those things where people started to want, uh, want to see, um, you know, action heroes that they could relate to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a definitely. great observation. 
So uh, before we before we close this up, Craig, I'll let you uh, plug or give a shout out to anything in particular. I know we talked about your show, but is there anything else that you're working on? Um, actually, um, one thing that I, I've really tried to to do in all of my my podcast appearances since, um, you know, in the last year or so, um, I gained a, a, an appreciation late later in life than I should have for um, the Ramones, who are just a tremendous musical force, in my opinion. Um, and I have a, a website that I've devoted to sort of doing uh this day in Ramones history for and uh I'm having a lot of fun with it and you can find that over at Ramones Pinhead uh dot blogspot dot com and I'll um I'll recognize album release dates, um birthdays, um news related to archival stuff that's going on with the band. And it's just sort of a fun way to check in every day and see, oh wow, you know, thirty years ago on this date uh, the band played a pretty kick-ass set in Rhode Island. Um, and um, about a week ago, we had the 42nd anniversary of the release of their first album. And um, I did a fun little experiment where I took live versions of every song from that album recorded between 1974 and 1991 and sort of created um a live uh uh you know uh, a live version of that album based uh off of all those different performances which i think is a really really fun listen so um if you're a music fan um and you haven't given the ramones a shot um you know check that out and uh you know also check out um the website um and uh, also a lot of times i'll plug everything i'm involved with on my twitter which is Mr. Craig Cohen, and that's with an MR. Um, and that'll have links to, to all, everything I do, including uh, this podcast, uh, you know, when it's posted. And I, and I appreciate the opportunity to come on and chat with you because uh, this was a lot of fun. Well, very cool. And uh, when, now, when will the, uh, the specialist episode be, be uploaded? Uh, well, let's see. Um, I would say, uh, probably mid, um, I'm not sure when you're posting this, um, but probably mid to late May, we're looking to release the specialist, uh, once we, uh, once we're, we're all able to sit down and, uh, and talk it. So, uh, yeah, wow. it should be within the, within the next month. Well, Hey, I, I, I have an appreciation for Stallone as well as Lundgren. So, um, if you ever need a, uh, another, another mic, or another <laughs> another voice in one of those. I would love to uh, to sit down. I know it's still a ways away, but um, I'd like to put my hat out there right now for Get Carter. And I know, like oh. I said, I know that's a ways down the line, but <laughs> I've always felt that Get Carter was not only one of Stallone's best performances, but one of his best movies, hands down. Excellent, so. excellent. You're, you're you're penciled in for that, and uh, you, you're you're definitely uh, you're definitely slotted in, and uh, I, I'm I'm already looking forward to that. All right, cool. Well, and um, I'm definitely I'm I'm curious actually be, before I let you go, are there any other films in in the Lundgren filmography that uh, that you have have this appreciation and affinity for, similar to Johnny Mnemonic by chance? You know what? Off the top of my head, um, like I said, we we alluded earlier to to the Punisher, but stuff after Johnny Mnemonic, um, uh, he went through a a, a a straight to DVD phase after this movie, right? 
He did. He did. And uh, a lot of those films are pretty much unknown. And so, yeah, if if you are interested, uh, please check out uh, what what Lundgren has done from, I'd say, 90, 96 through, well, I'd say up through The Expendables when he came back to the big screen in 2010. Any of those any of those things are, are ripe for the picking. So if, <laughs> if you'd like to come back on, I'd love to have you back on. Oh, I appreciate that. Like I said, thanks again. This was a lot of fun, and uh, and uh, I always appreciate the opportunity to uh, sit down and uh, and and talk through a film, especially uh, when it's such a fun film like Johnny Mnemonic. And we'll definitely plan that that Creed two crossover oh. in in November when that happens. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. All right, cool. Well, hey, Craig, thank you so much for joining me. I do appreciate it. And to everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews. And we'll see you all next time on I Must Break This Podcast.